Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am one of your hosts, Adam Pawatic. The other host staring me in the eyes right now is Aaron Cameron. Deeply. Deeply, yes. Our guest today is Tony Irwin, who is president and CEO of the Federation of Rental Housing Providers of Ontario, better known as FERPO. Welcome to the show, Tony. Thanks, Adam. Great to be here. So before we go anywhere else, let's just reference that we have had the president and CEO of FERPO on before, but it was not Tony. It was your predecessor. (laughs) And that was a couple of years ago. Yeah, at Bell Park at it two, two-ish. Yeah, yeah. It was whenever the Liberals had announced their fair housing plan, and so yeah. we had Jim on to talk about what that meant to rental providers, to the apartment owners in, in yeah. Ontario. And so fast forward two years later, we've got a different government, and they've got their own, I, it's not called the fair housing plan, but it's... More homes, more choice. Yeah, is that what it's called? More that's, homes, more choice? That's okay. what it's called. Yeah. Cool. Mm-hmm. The fair housing plan is a better name, but overall, it was not a great plan, so... <laughs> Well, it's, uh, it's it's interesting how much things can change, and certainly it's a new day in Ontario, and we're very pleased with the actions of the new government. So, before we get into for Bowen sure. and what it was Bill 108, let's just talk yeah. about how you ended up now sitting in this seat today and, and being the president and CEO of, of Firpo. Well, thanks, Aaron. So I've been in this role now for about nine months. My background is in uh, politics and government and advocacy. So once upon a time, I worked at Queen's Park for a previous conservative government. And since then, I've kind of made my way through a variety of different roles, whether it be uh, running a not-for-profit, the Just Neves Foundation, it's a um, foundation that grants scholarships and bursaries to learning disabled and disadvantaged young people that was uh, established by Ernie Eves, former Ontario Premier, after the death of his son in a tragically in a car accident in 1995. So I worked for him in politics for a number of years and then I had the chance to run his foundation post-politics, which was an extremely rewarding and gratifying experience to meet recipients, bursary recipients and their families who would say, you know, it's not necessarily about how much money you're giving us. It's about showing that you believe in us, showing that you were where no other sort of organization would be there to say you can be, you can be anything you want to be. And just the the simple sort of act of doing that to someone who is you know, has a learning disability and had always been told you can't make it, you can't be anything. No, you can't be something. And so that was an extremely rewarding opportunity for me to sort of do that. But eventually, the the lure of politics and public policy was too great, and so I came back into the world of sort of government relations, the insurance sector, and then uh, prior to coming here. To this role now, I ran the Canadian Consumer Finance Association, which is the national industry association for payday lenders, high-cost credit providers, and have now uh, come to this sector. So that's a little bit about me. I can't really relate to the call to public policy, but I'm glad people like you are out there <laughs> fulfilling their dream in that regard. <laughs> yes, well done. Well done. Keep going. <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, it's, some days it can be, uh, it can be uh, a bit of a grind, but uh, it is something that is I Do you go to school for politics? I did. It was always sort of something always you were kind of attracted yeah. to. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, but uh, now getting into the world of association management and digging into some very interesting issues, uh, and certainly uh, housing is one that we know is extremely important. Having a roof over your head, having a, a place to call home. I don't think there's much more in life uh, more important than that. So, it's an extremely important industry, and what I'm proud to now be part of. And good timing with the new bill that's come out. Yes, well, I mean, uh, you got thrown into the fire, <laughs> thrown into the deep end. Yeah, if you I didn't mean, know anything about apartments before, you certainly had to learn very, very quickly. I'm I, sure. I, I didn't know a lot. Uh, I, I've been a tenant in my lifetime, but that was uh, not, uh, not not in my immediate past. But you know, I think life is about uh, timing and opportunity, and certainly, you know, the opportunity was there. But uh, to come to this role, but uh, <laughs> the timing couldn't have been much better. I mean, in, in all seriousness, obviously, you talked to my predecessor. His timing was not so good. Being uh, head of FERPO during the Liberal government, certainly the last few years of the Wing government was not a great time to be in the seat. I think the collar would have felt a bit tighter and it would have been a, a much more stressful. It still is all of that, but very different working in, a, in this role at a time when the government is very interested about the challenges facing the sector, wants to make uh, positive changes. Certainly we view them as positive, both for landlords and for tenants, and that's refreshing, certainly compared to what was going on well, in the previous it, government. It's curious. I'm, I'm trying to remember the conversations we had with Jim when he was back on, and we were still in the midst of this, is it demand or is it supply issue? What right. is causing rents for not nearly as high as they are today, but they were trending upwards and right. you know, what's the max and are they going to flatline soon? Like It was still mm-hmm. the kind of uncertain environment versus now, you know, we're clearly not having is it a demand or supply conversation. Like everybody, everybody, including 
you know, provincial government is on yeah. board that it is a supply issue and that's what needs to be tackled. So maybe a different environment that you've entered than more certainty, I think. It feels like everybody knows there's a problem. We all have to deal with it now. Right. Versus at the time, I think there was still some questioning whether, you know, if we were looking, I, I remember I used to always talk about how there are so many cranes in the sky. How could we possibly fill all of these units? And you look back on that, I sound like an idiot saying that, right? Because there were, there were one-tenth as many cranes as there needed to be in order to satisfy the demand, right? So. Right. So before off air, you had talked about you know, basically since day one joining FERPO, how you've been working on Bill 108. So maybe you talk about what leading up to the announcement, you were kind of in the trenches, kind of making sure that this thing came out with some attributes that were positive. What, what were you doing? What was FERPO doing? What were your other counterparts working on? Right. So I joined FERPO at the end of September and right away it was hit the ground running, get in to meet with the minister, get in to meet with his office uh, and with the, uh, with the Ministry of Municipal Affairs and Housing to try to sort of have discussions but when I arrived, obviously those discussions were well in place. FERPO had been involved, certainly providing information to the PC party, you know, sort of leading up to the campaign, following that up afterwards. So certainly there was already a groundwork that had been laid. I came in and just continued on with that. And I guess the first sort of, I guess, good news story for us, I think it was November when the Minister of Housing, Steve Clark, announced that they would resume the reinstate the exemption for rent control for new construction. Right, so any unit newly occupied after November fifteenth of twenty eighteen would once again be exempt from rent control. That was something that had been in place that was commonly known as referred to as the post ninety one exemption. I believe it may have actually have been in place before the NDP government, but in nineteen ninety one it became sort of um, I guess more codified, and every government since then had left that in place for good reason, I think. But unfortunately, uh, the previous government had canceled that. So. Returning the exemption was the first very positive step. At the same time, the minister announced that there would be a housing supply action plan consultation. And so that was open until January 25th, giving all stakeholders and the public, uh, anyone interested, the opportunity to provide feedback to the government. So we saw the first announcement. We're very pleased by that. Certainly many uh, developers and, and those who wanted to build, who want to build personal rental, saw that as the first good step to sort of Bringing back a much better climate, one that said we actually want this to be, you know, you to yeah. build for, for context. Uh, sorry to cut you off. Sure. For context, just connecting the dots. Sure. When you when you put a rental control on new builds, it prevents the landlords from being able to, or the developers from being able to get rents increasing at market. Right. So if market right. rents are increasing, you know, eight, five, ten, whatever the number is, yeah. and yet you've got a rental control at one percent or inflation plus a percentage, yeah. it inhibits the owners to keep their rents going at market, which basically is almost disincenting them to build apartment buildings in the first place. So it was because we've got a supply challenge right. and yet you're putting legislative legislation in place that is encouraging developers not to build apartment yeah. buildings and build condos or build nothing at all. Yeah, it makes it much more difficult for the pro forma to make sense when you say, so you can set your, your rent at market when the building first opens, but then you're only able to increase it by the annual increase that's set by the government, which this year, for example, is 1.8%. It's going to take an awfully long time for you to recover your, realize your investment when that's the case. So that's why the exemption on new construction is so important to get builders and developers to actually look away from condo to actually look at purpose-built rental as a viable option. And that's what we need. And in our audience is kind of mixed. People that are familiar with apartments, people that aren't. But for those not super familiar with apartments, you know, year one of a new build is not spectacular financial performance. They really need a couple of years to... To mature, I guess, to an asset, to, you know, producing at a rate you could be proud of. They do. And if you put rent control on it, you're really pushing out that timeline quite far. Yeah, you, you already need patience to begin with, and now you need more of it under rent control. One of the other occurrences with the rent control when it was placed that I don't think was really thought through was lease up periods, right? When you build a new build, you know, the goal is to get it full as quickly as possible, get your term financing done. When you've got rental control, all of a sudden you don't want to just rent it to anybody, you want to rent it to the best tenants at the highest amount. So all of a sudden it's going to take you lot longer in a rent control environment to lease up. And then at that point, you're looking at it and saying, well, why would I build an apartment building in the first place if right. I have to go with this, this extra year of lease up to, in order to scrutinize my tenants much more closely? So there are a lot of repercussions that, that clearly were negative to the environment. Right. And we were, so we were suddenly advocating for that announcement. We were, we were quite pleased when the government followed through on that. But then, as I said, the next phase, which we then worked on until January 25th, until literally the last hour that we could get our submission in, which was 40 some pages. And is this, is this like, yeah, so it's just it's a report with statistics and backed up by figures and, and data? What, what does it look like? Right. So, what we did was we did a couple of things to help sort of inform our submission. One, we engaged Urban Nation, who we work with, uh, have worked with over a number of years, to update a study they'd done for FERPO about two years ago, and that's on the supply gap. And that's the, the study that, uh, 
uh, produce the, the figure of seventy to one hundred thousand units over the next ten years. That's the supply gap between what we have and what we need. So we wanted to get that updated so we could actually show government. Can we reiterate that seventy to one hundred thousand. It's a shortage big, of apartment units. It's a sure. big number, and I say it every time I speak, and I usually do pause and give it that extra emphasis because it's a big number to get your head around. I know you're going to say it later, but how many are under construction right now? So the number of applications in the pipeline, almost forty three thousand new units of purpose-built rental are in the pipeline right now, and that's 50% higher than just two years ago. Okay, so we're... we're those getting, aren't being built right now. Yeah, no, no, yeah, no, no, they're, they're not being yeah. built. That's they 70 are. to 100,000 that need today, yeah. not including what a kind of growth and demand is going to be coming down the pipeline. And to put, and to put yeah. that in perspective, the same Urban Nation uh, data that just came out last month was that the number of uh, purpose-built rental apartments that opened their doors to tenants, uh, and then this is first quarter of this year, was 1,849 units. Uh, so annualize that it's like yeah. you know maybe fifteen thousand a year we're building versus and that's nearly five times what it's been over the yeah, last couple oh, yeah, of years yeah. and so but as you say eighteen forty nine that's a drop in the bucket I mean it's great in that it's a it's an uptick but it's a drop in the bucket compared to what we need so if anyone you know questions whether this supply gap is real this is not fake news this is a real thing and so we had Urban Nation not this data this data is their own data and I want to suggest that we commission that particular those numbers but we had them update our supply gap study which showed this. Seventy two hundred thousand units. We wanted to be able to say to government, "This is this is real, and these are the number of units that are needed." So we did that. We also engaged Altus Group to work with us on putting together a pro forma to show under some different uh, with some different sort of variables. So we looked at you know whether it be market rent, whether it be thirty percent affordable, whether it be in Toronto and Ottawa. So we had some different sort of. We wanted to have a couple of different sort of models that we could put together and again show government who. You know, has a lot of folks that work in the ministry, but they don't necessarily have a ton of resources or knowledge around performance and and what does it actually take. You know, what kind of returns are needed or what kind of returns can be expected in the current climate. And then the reason to, we wanted to do that as well was to say, okay, so now that you've seen a performa and you see what the sort of numbers look like, there are some variables you can't do much about. You probably can't do that much about land costs or about hard construction costs, but there are some other variables. That if you recognize that if you want to help make the environment better for purposeful rental, that you might be able to you know sort of control and whether those be DCs or you know some other areas where government. I mean, uh, we certainly advocated for a sort of removal of provincial portion of the HST on new construction. That's not something the government's chosen to go forward with, and we probably are not that surprised. When a government's cash starved, they're not going to start to do that. But we wanted to highlight some of the some of the levers. If you kind of put all the the sort of various costs that go into a building into different baskets and say, so now that you've seen what the numbers look like and they're not great under the current landscape, then if you were able, if you were to pull some of those levers in different ways, how it might actually make the economics look better? So we wanted to do that and have have Altus Group sort of work with us on that. Can we highlight just for everybody listening, of course? Which levers were pulled? I mean, off the top of my head, development charges being deferred are one. What other economic incentives are out there for specifically our apartment uh, builders? Right. So in the end, when you look at Bill 108 and what the government actually actually did, so first of all, they separated out sort of hard DCs, so sewers and roads. Those are separated out and, and will continue. I mean, growth will continue to pay for growth. That's obviously a long-held government objective, and we certainly understand that. But what Bill 108 does is it separates out the hard DCs from then the soft DCs. So um, so like section know, 37? Right, right. And so what they have done is yeah, parkland, section 37, some of those things. And then what they have done with that is now that they've called it, and it's now a community benefit charge, CBC, not the television station. So CBCs are now separate, so that they've separated those out. And then in terms of what those look like for a builder going forward, is then there will be a formula used to determine how much those can be based on land value. And, and then and as, as well, some housing types will be exempt from CBCs altogether. Now we don't know yet. Certainly, we're advocating for personal rental to be. We know not. We know some other sort of you know community housing or other types of housing types. I think will be. Although I think officially the government hasn't actually said yet any of the types it will be, but we assume those will be. We're advocating for personal rental to be luxury apartment probably well. won't make the cut. Uh, probably not, but okay. certainly personal rental or not all of that, of course. So, so we'll see how that plays out in regulation. But that's what they have done is in terms of separating those out, and then they have said for DCs that they will be charged at occupancy and then payable over five years. So certainly that will have a positive impact on a builder looking at a pro forma and saying, can this project go forward? 
one of the biggest challenges today, as you guys both know, I'm sure, is certainty or lack thereof. So, you know, it's not about not wanting to pay them or thinking, but it's about understanding what will they look like, how are they going to be charged, and when are they going to be paid. And if there's greater certainty around those things, and obviously when you're doing a pro forma, you can know that and you can build that into your modeling, that's a far better situation than we have today. So those are those are the ways that uh, the government has tried to sort of take a look at, you know, impact some of the government imposed fees and charges and to the with the goal of making it a better economic sort of proposition. We spoke prior to recording about uh, timing on this. And so can you sure. kind of describe what we're looking at? If you're a builder right now and you've got a land site, when are these going to come into play for you? So, you know, that's always the the sort of uh, magical question in terms of when will something actually become effective. So Bill 108 passed third reading, passed the, it's, it passed the legislature last Thursday. I don't know the time of our recording this, whether it's received royal assent or not. If it hasn't yet, it will any time. Probably it already has. And so then that means it's law. But then what has to happen now is the government will now work on regulations. A lot of laws passed today are sort of enabling. They kind of provide the the sort of framework. And then regulations have to be brought in afterwards. It actually kind of, it's like the, the meat and the sandwich. So the sandwich is there. They then have to finish building it. And those are regulations that will come in the summer. So more conversations will come with the ministry on that, on understanding what the transitional or what the regulations will look like and how we'll transition from what we have today to what we're going to have with Bill 108. There'll be some, that'll take some time over the summer. So likely, you know, likely come fall, the regulations will all be in place and then we'll know what we're dealing with going forward. And so do you think that, like obviously we discussed already that apartment construction has accelerated over the last couple of years. Will this add that much fuel to the fire? Well, I don't think apartment construction's actually accelerated over the last, if you look at the data over the last couple of years, the number of personal rental suites built in Toronto has actually been quite low. It hasn't been a lot. We're starting to now see more positive trends as far as you know, uh, suites opening and applications in the pipeline. But that's really a very recent, I think if you go back and look at data over the last couple of years, it won't support real growth. It's only just now. And, you know, I, I'm, someone could say, well, you know, so these applications were in the pipeline before the new government made the changes. How do you account for that? Well, I, I don't necessarily know all the answers for why that is. I just think that there's a general, I think probably once the election occurred, even though changes hadn't been made yet, I suspect that there was a better Sort of, you know, it was sort of a, a changing of the winds, more confidence, even though the government hadn't actually, you know, enacted any change yet. I suspect that, you know, developers and builders realize that it's things are going to change, and us all knowing how long it takes for things to happen, start getting things going now under the sort of belief that the new government would make the necessary changes to make these projects feasible. And clearly, that's what's happened. I think more of this is going to happen going forward, and whether we'll whether we'll be able to bridge the gap of the seventy to hundred thousand units. I don't know, but I think that clearly this is now going to spur on you know people to get going with you know, new applications, we, new projects. We have a podcast in the waiting that we've recorded a couple of weeks ago that will be released in a couple of weeks with Wendy Waters from Great West Life Realty Advisors. Right, and we were focused more on demographics. And one of the things she was she referenced the same numbers, so the numbers are consistent. But her challenge was yes, but there's also an additional three hundred fifty thousand people joining the city every year, and Absolutely. there's all sorts of other restrictions and, and pressures. So yeah, that's it's seventy to one hundred thousand a day, but that's what you need to be built coming out coming online today just to keep up with the demand going forward. That that number isn't static. Right? No, it's absolutely right. I, I've said this in a few different speeches that I've given that exactly that that only keeps us on track with where with what we know right now. If immigration patterns change, if other things change that we don't aren't aware of now, then that number is keeps going, keeps growing. Yeah. Yes, it's going to get larger before it gets yeah. smaller. Like I think before we catch up, it's going to be one day we'll have you back in two years and it'll be 150,000 that we're short even though we've been building 50,000 a year. I, I think that's right. So, but these are certainly the changes and, and we talked about the, the ones that impact cost, uh, whether it be the changes to LPAT, which are going to sort of bring back more of the OMB rules. It'll still be called LPAT, will still be LPAT, but they're bringing back. Uh, so it is the OMB, but with an LPAT like cover on it? Which, how, does, how does that work? <laughs> well, you know what? I, I, will say, I will say what the minister said, which is the best of both. Regimes. I thought they were both bad. So what is, how does that work? <laughs> well, I, I think if you ask people, remember people in our sector, they would say that the OMB wasn't perfect, but compared to the sure. LPAT, uh, I, I don't think they would have said the OMB was bad. And of course, you have the folks on this side that would say, well, the OMB was just a, you know, just a shill for developers. So everyone's got their point of view. I think the point is, again, uh, as the minister said, when he announced uh, more homes, more choice, uh, the um, Housing Supply Action Plan and legislation, he said there were 100,000 units stalled at the OMB. 
uh, or LPAT, applications or, or the LPAT, right? Whatever well, you call right. It, yeah. So that says to me that we need to get. You know, clearly, there there were changes needed. I mean, I don't think it's a good system if you have that many units under application stalled before an appeal body. Probably, you need to get things, you know, make some changes. And so the government certainly has has done that. You, I'm sure, like I have heard sort of uh, criticisms from some in Toronto, uh, Toronto City Hall, about that. But again, from our point of view, it's about getting applications moving more quickly. Uh, having to wait, you know, five, six, seven years for an application to, to be approved, I don't think makes much common sense. So it's about getting that moving faster. It's about getting more resources. I think the government's committed 1.4 million dollars to additional. Resources for more adjudicators at the OMB or the LPAT yes. level. Yes, yeah. and as well, they're also going to bring in case management, which is a, again something that is used at LTB and does seem to help get. What sorry? What LTB? So sorry, the uh, the landlord tenant board. So the landlord tenant board has a case management system, which is again before you get to a hearing, it's a way to bring the parties together with kind of a third party mediator, case manager, in an attempt to try to get resolution before having to go all the way to the actual hearing itself. I think my understanding is that it does seem to have a good success at getting parties to resolve disputes. And so anything that can be done to streamline the systems, make them more efficient, get disputes resolved or get applications moving, it's good for landlords, but it's good for tenants. It's good for Torontonians who are looking for a place, a place to live. Who can't find one today, and that's we, we see these as all positive measures. So you've got they've reversed the rental guidelines. They've enhanced the DC process and the consistency or the certainty of what the charges will look like. LPAT improvements or OMB improvements. What else was a result of this? The LPAT, new, LPAT OMB. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. What do you call it? LPAT? Let's stick with LPAT. I think that's yeah, what they're calling they're, it. They're right? still so, going. It's still going to be called LPAT going okay. forward. Um, yeah. I like yeah. that better. Anyway, so and then more homes, more <laughs> choice, right? So what's, yeah. So and there are a couple. I mean, there are other things. I mean, it was a ninety-one page piece of legislation. So there's lots of things in there. And I say there's still some things that need to be sort of fleshed out in regulation. But in terms of a couple of other points in there. So another issue that you've probably heard about and may well have come up in some of your previous podcasts is inclusionary zoning. That's something that there are many different. There are there's certainly different sides or views. Is that? that I still can't. I, if you someone asked me, please define inclusionary zoning. I'd be like, I don't know. It's you know, they put something down where the zoning's all the same. I don't know. Like, how, can you do a better job than that? How do you explain? Yeah, it? I, I think so. I mean, uh, you guys will tell me. But uh, I, so inclusionary zoning means that if you have an application in to you know, for a project, then the, you know, the municipality might say, okay, well, we will approve X number of stories. But you know, thirty percent have to be affordable. So it's CMHC market rents, and so that's an attempt. So that's inclusionary. I think the term then means, of course, we're trying to have people in buildings of different income types, different backgrounds, different you know, different experiences. And the way the government is trying to, one of the ways they're trying to sort of, I guess, solve the affordable housing issues by saying we're going to come up, we've come up with this sort of inclusionary zoning. So, and they're going to do that across certain different sects of land. Throughout the city, or you're not going to know. So this is I'm a, from a developer's perspective. You're not going to know it's it's zoned for inclusionary zoning until after you've purchased the land, or it'll be on. It'll be there'll be a bylaw or be on title already that that is an, that is a parcel that includes part of this inclusionary zoning, or well, yet I, to be determined. Perhaps I, I, I'm sure the city of Toronto would like inclusionary zoning to exist everywhere. But what the province has done through Bill 108 is said we're going to put some sort of restrictions around where it can exist. So whether it be around transit stations. Whether it be around sort of some underutilized employment land, so maybe it's a big track of land that had a factory on it 50 years ago, and it hasn't been a factory for 30 years or however long, and they're 20 years, and it's been sitting basically vacant, not doing anything. It's still zoned employment land. One of our points, certainly from FERPO, has been to say those lands need to be better utilized. You talk about buying land. Well, no one's buying land in Toronto, particularly, certainly not for purposeful rental apartments. Any of those kind of properties being built generally speaking, are on lands that are already owned. So it might be a... a There's more intensification going on than the right. new Right, well, because you can't find land, and yeah. if you can't find land, good luck being able to afford it. So the inclusionary zoning piece, as it relates to Bill 108, was the government saying, we're going to restrict where it can happen. So clearly they believe that it's something that is worthwhile, but they weren't going to let it just happen anywhere. So there's a side tangent a little bit here. You had mentioned about how you were using some of the urbanation numbers as part of your submission to sure. to help sort of form the government's opinion on how to mold this build. And one of the things you talked about, you know, what does it look like if you've got 30% affordable units? The Land and Development Conference we were at a couple of weeks ago, one of the presenters was putting up some numbers about what land prices look like if you start adding in requirements for rental market or affordable units. And you know, we always talk about this, this podcast. Affordable units don't necessarily mean 
community housing units. They just mean units that are more affordable than some of the more expensive units that are available. Sure. Anyway, so he was going through and saying, okay, if you're going to buy this piece of property, it was a, it was a true transaction. City owned the land, I forget the, the intersection, but it was Grosner and Gerard or somewhere kind of in the, in the city center, you know, around Young and Church kind of area, Bloor Young Church area. And they're buying the land from the city. And the developers were able to get the city to the city wanted thirty percent affordable. And so what the presenter did was say, well, here's what it looks like if it was just market rents. Mm-hmm. And they thought it pro forma, it worked backwards, it pro forma out to 180 bucks per square foot buildable. If you were going to be able to charge market rents or charge the highest rents you think you could possibly get, I think they were using like three dollars and seventy five cents per square foot as the mm-hmm. end objective rent. If you then take that 30% affordable requirement by the city, but you still want your pro forma to work with the same return, and the return wasn't egregious, it was like a 12 to 15% return, which is typical for developers, the land price went from 180 bucks per square foot to 54 bucks per square foot. And the city, and so good on the developers, they actually, they took this information and said, fine, I will for sure keep 30% at an affordable levels. I think it was the same thing, it was a CMEC average, but... You have to allow me to still make the same return I would have made had I been buying this at market and charging market rents. And mm-hmm. so, look, here is the pro formas, and I would have paid one eighty six at an open market. If you want me to maintain my thirty percent affordable units, the price is fifty four bucks per foot. Incentivize me, yeah. Me. No, that, and then and the city—that's what the city sold it to them for. The right. city said, "Yeah, okay, I agree, I understand." So um, for me more, it's interesting that that 30% everyone talks, well, yeah, just make more units affordable. And maybe this is one of the things that was in your submission. The city's going to appreciate that, you know, yeah, sure. It's great for you to say you must build 30% of your units to affordable. But if I'm buying it at 180 bucks per square foot mm-hmm. buildable, I'm not able to do that. It will, it will make my, it'll break my pro forma. And of course, if I'm a landowner, like a true landowner, not the city, just because the developer is being told you have to include 30% of your units as affordable units. I'm not going to now sell my piece of property to you at an extreme discount, 180 bucks to 50 bucks, right? Like we're not talking like $20, $30 per square foot biddable. We're talking like, you know, do the math. I don't know, it's like an 80% discount yeah. or 60% discount. It's significant, right. significant land price discount in order to get that, those performers to work. Anyway, I thought it was really, really interesting, you know, to see them side by side and how that land price really has to change if we want more affordable units in the city. Well, related to that too, I, and uh, Tony, you probably clarify better than mm. I can, building on government surplus land is part of Bill 108. Absolutely, and you were just talking about that, and I, I don't know uh, the example that you're speaking of. It, it may well be, it was actually provincial land. It was the old uh, Ontario Corners building on Grenville and Grosvenor that was just recently sold, and that was sold to was Greenwind and another company. Who acquired that yeah, uh, who, that land? And that was actually provincial government. It was the provincial. Oh, it was the province. Yeah, I couldn't yeah. remember. I just knew yeah. it was government sale, and, and that they yeah. bought into the the developers. Sort of look, my pro forma has to work. Here's the price I'll pay, and they said, okay, fine. Well, and I think a part of that is it was the province. I would, I don't know how that conversation would have gone if it were with the city. The province, you know, recognizes that supplies needed, and they they recognize. I mean, they whether it be old abandoned OPP stations, or certainly the government, provincial government is looking at surplus land, and that was the announcement when that was made. With Greenwind, and I forget the name of the other company that's involved, but you know there was the Minister of Government Consumer Services and the Minister of Housing, and they both said, you know, this is surplus government land. We've done this deal. There's going to be housing there. Yes, there's going to be some affordable housing. There's going to be other, I think, some retail and other things on the site. But they recognize that they've got, they have a lot of land. The province obviously owns a lot of land, and if it's not being used, if it's been declared surplus, why not repurpose that land? For housing, and so that was a great announcement. We were very pleased to see that. I know there are other parcels of land the government is looking at selling, and certainly, you know, hope, hopefully they will utilize the yeah, same. Yeah, well, uh, if that's thinking. the way that they're going, that, that's yeah. a, that's an awesome approach because it's you're, you're basically saying to the developer, you will retain the return you would have retained yeah. had you built this at market, yeah. but yeah. we need more affordable units, so we will eat the cost to you, right, to yeah. allow that. And then, of course, there's all the sorts of ancillary benefits of the city and you know, for sure. the, the public at large. So, so what, the, the client, the, the province doesn't get the same kind of you know price they would have gotten had they sold it at market, but they're generating so many other th- benefits to the, to the community. Well, if, if we know that we have a housing crisis, which we do, and I don't think that's, uh, I never like to be, uh, you know, sort of you know, amp things up unnecessarily, but I think the data suggests, shows very clearly that we do. No, amp it up. That's then, true. Then, this is a crisis. Then we, the, but it is. I mean, the data says that. So if that's the case, then we need to be creative at finding options for housing. Land is not easily findable. And as I say, to that point as well, we're talking about creative solutions for housing. Certainly selling surplus land. I mean, A, the government is broke. Uh, that certainly seems to be, or you know, has a huge deficit that they want to try to address. So selling land is not in and of itself going to solve it, but you know, certainly it, anything you can do to, 
to help that is, uh, I think, is, is an admirable goal, especially if you can do it for housing. There are other things that can be done. And, and you know, I talked earlier about how members of our, FERPA members who are building in Toronto, if they are building anywhere, it's on sites they already own. So we call these unicorn sites where they were probably built in the 60s or 70s when land was abundant. Land use was very different then than it is now. So they had you know, much bigger spaces, green spaces. And But now, given the crisis we're in, they're saying, we can fit another tower or maybe two in there. So let's get on with that. Well, under the current climate, the city can still make it very difficult to get that tower built. And we're saying that doesn't make any sense. It's, you know, we're talking about an area where there already are towers, infrastructure is already there. It makes sense to utilize those kinds of properties to put in another tower. And so we certainly urge the government to do, there's nothing in Bill 108 that specifically references that, but certainly, you know, we've, we have been talking about, because to me, to us, that's pretty low hanging fruit. We're not asking, it's not made, what, what needs to be done you just need to approve those applications, whether it's as of right or just say, you know what, if someone applies to build another tower where there's existing towers, maybe not take five years to look at the application. Maybe see, maybe just look at it and say, okay, that makes sense. It meets all the criteria. Let's approve it and get going. How do you think the changes in Illinois will make that this vision come true? Well, I mean, I think the the changes, when you look at them holistically in terms of what's in Bill 108, I think they are the government is absolutely on the right track to say, to send the right message to builders and developers who want to build apartments. I mean, we have many members who over the last 10 years have been basically building condos because that's the only housing type that really has made economic sense. But many of them want to build apartments. They want that asset they can hold for 30, 40 years or longer. They want that. I think what the government has done now, the actions they've taken in Bill 108 say, we want that too. We understand that we are part of the solution for providing the economic conditions to be able to make this make sense. We're not going to be attacking you. We don't see you as the, as the enemy. We yeah. see you as the partner. I mean, private sector builders and providers are essential to the solution. This government recognizes that, and they've now, I think, made some some great changes through 108 that will actually get you know get shovels in the ground. Every time I see the minister, he says, how many shovels in the ground today? I say, well, like, <laughs> mine's in my back pocket. I'll get it out for how, you. How does the you know? provincial government incent cities to, to take on that Sort of expediency that that to speed things up. I mean, I'll use one of our previous guests off air was telling us a story about having a debate for weeks, maybe a month or so, with a city staff about the color of one of the panels on a wall, yeah. and it's just like he was just like, really, like it's green and you want it to be turquoise. Like we're going to spend a month now talking about this, like, right. and it seems like sometimes that they just there's this nitty gritty perspective from the city that just really does cause the. The bog down of time frame. So, how do you get how do you get people? How do you get that on the you know those boots on the ground? Those people that are having those really maybe unnecessary conversations. How do you get them to stop that? Yeah, and I, you know, and I've heard that. I hear that all the time. You know, I was the government uh, after they announced the um, housing supply action plan consultation. We had I lost count. I think once we hit double digits of government meetings, I was at the Ministry of Housing so often that they just one day suggested in the lobby that they should. You know, give me a desk, and I said, "Well, if you want to, that would make things easier for me. I'm here so much, so I cannot fault them for lack of consultation." But these sessions had, you know, all kinds of uh, cross section of people from the sector, from government, municipal governments, different people who have an interest in this industry. And I'd hear we'd hear countless stories about that, about whether it be discussing removing six trees or whether it be, and it's not about being anti-tree. I love trees, but you know, you have to keep things in context to slow down a whole project. Over sometimes things seem like they're a little misplaced, and so. How do you make that move more quickly? And you raise a really interesting and admittedly, I think, tough question because in the case of City of Toronto, I mean, they, the city of the city council was uh, very vocal in their opposition. The chief planner for Toronto was vocal in his opposition to the bill. I think they passed a motion at city council opposing the bill. That doesn't bode well for where we go from here. Mm-hmm. So I do think it's a valid question you raise uh, as to the province has done what it can do. But as we all know, a lot of these the sort of practical, the rubber hitting the road is at the municipal level. So how, what can be done to ensure? Well, I think certainly the changes to Alpat again. So you know the changes that the previous government made when they got rid of the OMB and created the Alpat really put the concentrated power into the hands of you know, local officials to the point where I think it really was it, it, it sort of created considerable inertia and bottlenecks in the system. So. They have now said, well, we're going to change that and then put the power back into the appointed members of Valpad. I think that will certainly have a have an effect in terms of, you know, if there are applications in dispute, which undoubtedly there will be, there needs to be some way to sort of break the logjam. And currently it's not happening. So I think that's one way that in as much as you wouldn't want to have to go there if you don't need to, no one wants to go to Alpad really. People I think we'd rather have a system where that's not necessary, but we all know. 
that's not realistic. So at least then have a body that can actually you know overrule or or make a decision. So much I think so much of the problem often in, in many things in life is just you just need someone to make a decision who has the authority to say here's what's going to happen and let's go forward. You've made your point. You've made your point. I'm making a ruling. And we need to get on with it. Otherwise, this could just go around and around yeah. and around circles forever. We, the answer has come up in this podcast many times now. The answer is, is smart people. Yeah, we've had a lot of smart people on, yourself included, clearly. And I don't even know how to say this, but it's just take the major thoroughfares and just slap down know, blanket zoning on them that they can all be 10 stories or 12 stories. Yeah. And they will build them. Go just allow the developers to buy the property and know what they can build on it the day that they take possession. Just go. Don't let them have to always, every single deal has to get a a new application and a, and a rezoning done, right? A, by, a zoning bylaw application has to be submitted. Seems seems to be kind of, that is the logjam because you're forcing every single developer, every single deal yeah. to submit something for a change. Well, last fall, FERPO, we hosted a housing summit with OREA and OHBA. It was the second time we had done it. Uh, I did this one at the uh, Toronto Board of Trade. And we had panels, panelists speaking about all number of a variety of topics. And one of the panels we were talking about sort of, you know, if you could... What's the one single thing if you could have that would really get you know sort of get you and in your view would sort of you know really get development going? If there was one thing you could have, what would it be? And certainly there was uh, I think uh, a few people on that panel, uh, some from our sector, who said if we could have true as of right zoning in certain areas, whether it be time limited or whether it be until the vacancy rate hits a certain level, like figure out how you want to do it. But the, you know because we. You know, supposedly have as of right zoning, but it doesn't really work that way. So we could actually have true as of right zoning, make it for, and we put this in our submission. Our submission had, I think, over 40 recommendations. So it was quite comprehensive. One of them was around as of right zoning for either five years or until vacancy rate hits maybe 3% or, you know, I forget what number we actually put in, but probably somewhere around there. Unfortunately, the government didn't do that, but they did plenty of other things to say, you know, to obviously, you know, spur development on. And so we're very pleased with the overall direction of the bill. But, you know, to your point, if that were something that could actually exist in certain areas. Now, I would say, again, it wasn't part of Bill 108, but it came last week, and it's an important sort of item as well. As relates to Save Toronto, there was the, there's the TO Corps and Midtown in Focus plans. So those were plans that the City of Toronto, City Council had brought forward that would govern how development can occur uh, in the city going forward. I'm not... As familiar with TO Core, that's I think down sort of by the by the waterfront. But Midtown and Focus is Young and Eglinton, Bayview and Eglinton. It's in that area. We have mm-hmm. a lot of members who are looking to build in that part of Toronto, and so we are very concerned because the plan that had come out of the city of Toronto, I think, it limited number of stories to at Bayview and Eglinton to I think six. Uh, that sounds and, exactly perfect. Yeah. Right. And Bayview and Eglinton, or Young and Eglinton, was not a lot more, uh, well below what we certainly believe should be allowed. Really ridiculous, eh? Right. And so. Last week was important because that was the date by which the Minister of Housing had to either sign off on it or send it back. Well, he sent it back and said that these plans are not going to cut it. And so that was, again, another great piece of news. I think now Bayview and Eglinton will be author- allowed up to, I think, 35 stories. I'm, just, I'm, I'm assuming Young and Eglinton is probably greater. Uh, more than that doesn't mean it will happen, but it means that it's now it will now be I mean, being it, contemplated at yes, the very least. Yes, at the very least. So that's again another because we were you know our members were saying you know if this plan goes forward as the city of Toronto has devised it, how like how's this going to work? I mean, we need density, and we're not talking about density in a leafy single family neighborhood that only has nice single family homes. We're not saying we should just all of a sudden throw up a you know thirty five story tower in that area, but areas around Bayview and Eglinton with the LRT coming in now, you know Young and Eglinton. If we're going to have density anywhere, it should be in those kinds of places. And I understand that maybe people who live there don't love that. But if we're a major cosmopolitan international city, we have to build up. Don't get me started on NIMBYism. Right. <laughs> and so, 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 not, so that was sort of an additional, I guess, piece of good news after 108 was the government minister of housing last week sending it back and saying, you guys are going to need to redo this and come up with some different numbers. And so that will, again, so you're, when you're saying what things, you know, how are we going to deal with the sort of municipality as well? Those types of announcements send very strong signal to cities and municipalities from the Ontario government that says, this is our vision, this is what we want to see happen, you better get with the program or we're going <laughs> we're gonna to run the program for you. And that seems to be kind of the way this government is, is operating. And it may not be the most ideal way you'd want things to go forward, but it's hard to argue with some of the decisions that they're making. Related on that topic, you mentioned the, the local councillor's impression of uh, Bill 108. Josh Matlow was quoted in the Toronto Star, and he did not mean this as a compliment. The development industry won. 
should we take that as a compliment, even though he didn't intend it as one? Is this a big win for our side? See, and that's and we talked about this off air, and let's go, let's go there now about just this connotation in the in the media about the big bad developers, just sure. you know, money hungry. All they want to do is I don't even know. Like I, I, right. I don't even I don't really understand it because I I mean maybe because I, a lot of my colleagues and people that I interact with on a day to day basis are are developers and clearly are not those that devil type person that seems to get painted. So how, what is Furpo doing, and how do you kind of see that uh, that challenge? So to get to the first question first, Councillor Matwell's statements, of course, it's not complimentary, and of course, I think everyone knows very clearly, you know, Councillor Matwell's position on these matters, and and Councillors Wong Tam and Layton and, and many others. I think it's unfortunate, but it's you know it is what it is. I would say what's been announced is you know I'm always reluctant to get into winners and losers. It's good news for. Torontonians who are living here today and can't find somewhere to live, who are who are planning to come here in the next few years and need to be housed. I think it's a great decision. I think you know there's a lot of rhetoric out there and a lot of obviously sort of people can get carried away. I think with their language sometimes when I hear comments like this is going to set Toronto back generations, I just don't think that's true. <laughs> you know, and, and I think simply because legislations come forward. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden you're going to see 50-story towers going up all over the place. I mean, I think we have to be sort of realistic about what's going to occur. And it's it's not, you know, I, I don't think that the ability of local municipalities to have a say in planning decisions has all of a sudden gone away. I mean, we still have uh, robust planning processes and rules and, you know, sort of guidelines, and they will still exist. Yes, the provincial government has made some changes in recognition of a crisis that we have, and uh, you know, many many developers. I mean, they have it as internal policy that they will not go to the OMB, right? Because they, they don't, do. You're they right. don't want to disrespect the city that you're, they're working with. Absolutely. They see the city as a partner, and so they're going to work right. with the city to the very end you're and never right. go to that appeal process because they don't want to be seen as right. somebody that's just going. To, I'm just I'm just submitting this application yep. so that I can get to the OMB. You're absolutely or right. The LPAS. You're sorry. absolutely right. There are some who, on principle, don't do that. So I guess you know I listen. I take that all in, and you know I sort of take it for what it's worth and for what it is. I would, I guess my response to folks like Councillor Matlow would be, so you don't like this bill, clearly. It's pretty obvious, your view on it. If you acknowledge there's a crisis, and I would I would hope that he would because of the data that's quite apparent, then what are your solutions, right? I mean, it's easy to cast judgment. It's easy to be critical of something that someone has done, a plan or an idea, but then give me something else then. What is your suggestion for bringing on the number of, of suites or units that we need? Simply saying something is bad or, you know, sort of being opposed to something is not overly helpful. It's, you know, it, it is it gets his uh, it gets his view point of view out, and maybe it's good. It gets his it gives him a chance to sort of air his views. But I would be much more interested then in hearing another other suggestions or other ideas. If this isn't a, if you don't think this is a good solution, then what's yours? And I haven't heard a lot of that except to say that what the Ontario government's done is horrible and is bad, and that doesn't advance the debate. It doesn't get us any closer to getting the housing online that we so that we desperately need. need. And sorry, and just in terms of the the other side, sorry, the yeah. other part of your question about the, you know, I, I think you know there have been a lot of media stories of late. We've probably all seen them, you know, whether it be about you know improper, improperly asserting personal use, and then having uh, tenants go to the LTV and fight that upon learning that you know the, the, the landlord after a few months then went and re-rented the unit, which is contrary to the, the, residential, the residential Tenancies Act, or whether it be rent evictions where someone goes in and a landlord. Evicts tenants, claims that they need a vacant possession of a building, and and doesn't follow. The Put some lipstick on it, and then send somebody back in there. Yeah, right. Doesn't follow the appropriate procedures uh, for for how that works. I mean, there are we do have a very comprehensive set of rules and guidelines that apply for whether it be personal use, whether it be renovating, and so uh, we are seeing more of that. And I think there are a few issues that that are important to discuss or just to raise with that. First of all, the rules are there for a reason, and certainly my view very much so is that they need to be respected. And I would I don't condone anyone who sort of tries to, you know, sort of, you know, cut corners or not do things properly, that we have a system and that's there's good reason for that. The issue with some of these renovations, of course, is that the stock in Toronto is so old, right? So, you know, we have I think eighty percent of the apartment buildings in Toronto were built before 1980, and like 4% of them were built, you know, after the year 2000. I mean, it's, it's a very old stock. And traditionally, the way landlords have addressed that, because the amount that they can um, get an increased rent is quite small, because of course the exemption only applied after 1991. So anything built before 1991 
is not exempt from rent control. So it's under the old regime. So you're only able to get a small rent increase. That's not going to deal with needing a new roof or a new boiler or a new, you know, those are very expensive repairs. And so historically, landlords have been able to deal with that by vacancy decontrol. So you're, you rent an apartment, you're there for 20 years, you're under rent control or longer, paying your, your little increase every year, and then you move out. And so then when you move out, the landlord is then able to do some of these major repairs and then reset the rent. At, at market. Right. That's what that's within the system that we have. And so that's how, that would be what the time when a lot of these repairs would get done and then able to then increase the rent to be able to, you know, sort of uh, realize a return for those expenditures. That's not happening so much anymore because vacancy rates are so low, because the inventory is so, and the market's so tight, no one's moving out of their units. So, well, and, the, and the delta between moving to a new unit, let's say you change jobs and you go from North York to the beaches or wherever, in theory, you'd move apartments from North York to the beaches to stay right. close to your work. But right. if your rent's going to go from twelve hundred dollars a month to twenty seven hundred dollars a month, just to move to the same, basically the same unit, right. but in a different part of the city, you're now going to commute every day to work. Absolutely, I think that's happening a ton. Absolutely. So now you've got buildings that are fifty, sixty, seven years old. They need. They're running into. They're getting closer to the end of their kind of useful life. And so now, major works needed to be done. Landlords have to move tenants out, and it creates a lot of friction. And because no one wants to be displaced, no one wants to have to go through that. But do you want to live in a building where there are huge electrical problems, or where you know there are just massive issues that need to be remedied, and really can only be done with a building being empty? So it's, it wasn't an issue ten years ago because buildings weren't as old, and because turnover was much more. It was at a higher. And rate. you could find a unit in comparable rents right. next door or down the street right. or whatever. Right. So now it's not, and because of that, you're seeing more of these new stories because it's creating a sort of a more hostile environment. I think, you know, I think life is expensive. Right? It's expensive to live and people have found a place to live and when they're being displaced from that, it's not an easy, it's not an easy go for them. So, but the landlords are just trying to do the right thing. They want to provide safe buildings that are up to standard. So, but it, it is causing a bit of a, a, certainly some challenging environments and circumstances. And so I think, you know, as landlords, it's incumbent on us to be the very best, you know, sort of corporate citizens we can be provide the best product we can be, communicate to our tenants when there are situations arising, do the best we can to help them. But at the same time, I think, you know, from the, the other side of that coin is, I think, you know, we should not always be painted as, you know, that we're, that we're bad or that we're doing, you know, that we're sort of doing bad things. I mean, you know, our industry, most landlords are excellent and do, you know, give back in their communities and do lots of great things. There are always exceptions. Any industry has their sort of Outliers, but of I course, because excellent you know, landlords don't make the newspapers. They don't, the, and so. But I think you know, I've heard all kinds of great stories, and it's not to minimize any bad stories. It's just to say that I think sometimes, whether it be about landlords or any pick any topic you can imagine, uh, sometimes people are quick to rush to judgment. They have certain preconceived notions in their head. I would never say to you guys or anyone else that we're perfect, but I think there are challenges in this industry as in any other, and we always need to be doing our best and, and looking at ways to be better. But I think that you know the when you hear some rhetoric and you hear some heated language, and I've been in interviews where it, it can get kind of testy. I mean, I don't think that really helps anyone in the end. I think we all need to be be willing to talk to you know the other side of the table, whether it be tenant advocates and them speak to us and try to figure out ways that we can work together on things. And, and at the end of the day, what matters most are the tenants. The tenants are at the center of all this, and you know, trying to make sure that we can have the best city we can be, the best apartments we can have, but recognizing that there are challenges that need to be addressing the system. And, uh, and that's all we're trying to do. On the theme of you know, excellent, excellence in landlording, if that's actually a phrase. It's not a phrase. <laughs> no, I, I think be. you just made one up. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> Keep it. let's get the dictionary okay, folks so out here. Excellence yeah, yeah, in landlording. Uh, what's what's FERPO <laughs> doing to, you know, to, to raise the bar or further the cause of those, the majority of those landlords that are performing ethically and well? It's a great question. You know, they're, they're, no, they're doing good landlording. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to repeat it because you guys seem to have really uh, sort of monopolized that. You own that for sure. So I won't copy it because you'll then you'll sue me for copyright or something. So you know, I think the uh, we do. There are a number of things that Furpo does. Uh, obviously, having been around for over 30 years, we've we've you know we've with a large membership base. We're always trying to, whether it be through education programs, you know, we we run every year we run RTA seminars across the province. So uh, those cover sort of the issues of the day that are topical, changes in legislation, case law updates, sort of political updates. So that's those are very well attended by our members from across the province who come. They listen to sort of expert panelists talk about what's happening in the industry. What do you need to know as a landlord? What are things that are changed? 
things that are changing in the act, things that are changing, uh, you know, at the uh, landlord tenant board, you know, all the really important issues that are that are relevant in the day. So that's that's certainly one thing that we do every year because uh, it's every year there's new information to cover. So it's always it's always topical. Whether it be holding seminars on sort of crisis communications, how do you, you know, we've, we've had buildings with not necessarily FERPA members, but buildings with electrical fires and evacuations. So what can you do in those moments? You know, I worked in politics. It was always about issues management and crisis communications. And so we've held seminars on that to say to our members, in these circumstances, what should you be doing? What should you be doing to ensure that your tenants, you're communicating to them, you're keeping them sort of posted on what's happening, and, and it's a it's a two-way line of communication. So those are some of the kinds of things. And then the other thing, too, that FERPO has had for a number of years is our certified rental building program. So within FERPO, we have, it's a certification. It's kind of like a you know good housekeeping seal of approval program that we run. It's an internal program, but third-party audited. J.D. Power used to do the audits. Now they're done, I think, by you know different but still external auditor. So you put your units in, you say, I want to be part of this program. You then, there's a, there's a criteria you have to meet. You get audited. If you pass, it means you're, you're in. And what that does is it says to a tenant or prospective tenant, this building has a certification. It, it speaks to how it's managed. It speaks to the condition that it's in. It speaks to a whole number of criteria. So we're constantly trying to evolve that, trying to sort of grow that, get more of our members' units into the program, because I think that's really important for people who, you know, if you're looking for your first apartment or you're moved to a new place, you don't really know it that well. To have that seal on a building says should say to you that it is, you know, it's a good building. Would, so, it, would it speak to purchasers in the event of a sale as well? I would think. I mean, uh, certainly. I mean, it, it, it because it's a pretty rigorous standard that has to be maintained to be in it. So whether you're looking to, whether it's an acquisition or whether it's a tenant, I think it's a really good program. I speak, I think it's great. I can't say enough good things about it. And so we're always trying to, you know, it's like anything. You, you know, if you build it, you hope people will come. So we've built this program, but you know, it's when uh, did this come out? Oh, this has existed for over ten years. Oh, okay, so it's been yeah, longstanding. Yeah, yeah, it's been, but it's like anything. You need to, you know, it's uh, you always have to. It's it's a, it's constantly. You have to constantly work on it. Sure. Constantly yeah, try to get people to bring their units in and to continue to show the value in the program. So those are those are some things that we do at FERPO to educate our members, keep them up to date on what's happening. Help them be the best landlords they can be, and also, you know, we of course participate in community functions, and we have a member of our team who attends countless you know, community events, barbecues, you know, and gives out material and literature and other giveaways and things, all just to sort of be connected to our communities, to give back to our communities where we have buildings. And we're small; we're only seven people, so we're not a we're not a huge organization, but we do as much as we can to be involved where we have buildings and and to give back and to to. Provide information both to you know tenants and members of the public, as well as to our members to be, I won't say your word, but to be the best landlords that they can be. And on that topic, First National and FERPO are partnering together to do a FERPO. It's a First National sponsored FERPO seminar where we'll be talking about CBC insured construction financing and have some landlords up there talking about their experiences. So look out for the invites. If you're a FERPO member, you'll, you'll see it coming. And if you're not, reach out to us. We'll get you on the list so you can come and see that panel. This has been great. Anything else you want to you mention? I think we've covered Bill 108. That was really informative. I mean, FERPO clearly has got their work cut out for them, but it sounds like they're in, going in the heading in the right direction now with the kind of a line from legislation, so that that's always helpful. That's been great. Thank you very much for coming on. As always, I'd like to thank our sponsor, First National. Thank Adam and, and thank our guests. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure, and I look forward to coming back in. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number One O Five One Four and Eleven Two Five Two.